0: You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride, thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Diggin' Oak Island. we talk about this week's new episode of The Curse of Oak Island, we have a few emails and comments to talk about. A couple of long ones, too, so let's get right to it. I love this part of the show. Our first email comes from Roy, who writes, Since I became interested 20 to 30 years ago, I've thought certain things must be so. Thus far, everything still looks like this to me. Who could do it? It seems to me that if we can accept the basic elements of the story as true, that there was a super deep pit with logs and charcoal at set levels and that there were at least two traps by way of tunnels to the beach with broad use of coconut fiber with or without a flat stone with writing, then certain things should be obvious. This was a major undertaking. An engineer was required. A significant amount of labor over a significant amount of time was necessary Secrecy was required as to precisely what was being built and for what purpose, and those in the know had to be kept to a few and devoutly loyal. This project was itself incredibly expensive and required some pre-planning. For these reasons, I can't see a pirate treasure being hidden. They didn't have the resources and abilities for this. To me, some sort of military or paramilitary presence seems far more likely— A bit of military makes sense. It would be easy to come up with a cover story, perhaps even true, such as we're going to build a repair harbor or make tar for the fleet, etc. Soldiers are good at following orders, accepting everything, believing nothing, and grumbling constantly. They are used to building things without knowing what they're building and why. For them, a pit or a well is just another hole in the ground to be dug. Tunnels are all for drainage, etc., Plus, the labor can be moved around the different projects at different times. They wouldn't know exactly what they had built, except for the last few poor souls, perhaps, when the deposits were made or the trap salted. Uh, Why? Again, certain things seem obvious when it comes to the why he's saying here. For one, the pit is a brilliant diversion, meant to do exactly what it has done for 200 years, which is to occupy anyone happening upon it for literally centuries. It appears to have been designed to be found. Any treasure, in quotes there, is likely from salting the mine, which I think likely or it signals another retrieval method via caves or such. But I suspect the first, and that whatever was hidden was put down where it could be more easily retrieved, even if it was meant to be done in stages. That something was hidden seems to me probable just because I can't think of why else do this. So we need to look for a captain and an engineer, perhaps a mason. They could be one person, I suppose, but it seems more planned out and likely one ship carried the equivalent of a corps of engineers or craftsmen. But who were they? Assuming what they wanted to hide was treasure, then to justify such expense of this plan, the treasure had to have been immense and therefore likely to be retrieved in portions. The idea that any treasure must have been immense also suggests that the hiding folk may have expected not to get it, or or all of it at least in their lifetime. More likely, it was it was to be used later for some big, like an anticipated war, reclaiming title or active revenge. If this is correct, then there had to be, there would had to have been some type of map or hand-me-down symbol system for the future heirs. And think about that. If you expect someone in the future to get it, then it's likely that you think you also know when they should get it. How would you provide for those it's intended for? To both know when and where to retrieve it. All of this makes it seem more probable that what was hidden was retrieved and that it could have been either before or after the trap was sprung. But everything springs from how elaborate the money trap money pit trap was and the genius involved in building it. Roy Roy, my goodness, folks, you got to keep it down a little bit uh, <laughs> maybe spread these over a couple of emails, stuff to read all those, but I love this uh, incredible big picture type of email that springs so many things into mind, justifying the idea of leaving breadcrumbs behind or clues inside of things you might not know where they are and that kind of thing. Um, And you're bringing to question here the very heart of the mystery. The way you're thinking here is very reminiscent of how many people talk about the big picture, so to speak, of the Oak Island mystery. It's a fascinating email for sure. Roy, all of your points are well thought out, well taken. Um, I'm not going to go through them point by point. I mean, I could, but uh, I think the real heart of this whole thing and what you're saying here too. The whole idea of whether or not one is a believer in the treasure or not, whether or not we can get past your first sentence here, right? It comes from the very top of your email where you say, quote, if we can accept the basic elements of the story as true. This is what I hear so many people say when asking about Oak Island or whether they believe in the treasure or what theory someone may lean towards. In order for you to be on board With all those conversations, you must first decide if you, quote-unquote, accept the basic elements of the story to be true. But do you really? Because even that, the idea of the basic elements, is so hard to define, right? What basic elements are we talking about here exactly? For instance, one might not accept that Daniel McGinnis and his two friends stumbled across a depression in the ground on Oak Island. Even that incredibly basic and fundamental part of the story, the, the quote-unquote once-upon-a-time of this whole thing, is often and currently in dispute by experts. Now, I'm nowhere near certain that that part of the story is how this whole thing actually began. But what is so amazing about Oak Island is that even if you don't accept that small and specific portion of the story is true, doesn't mean that you don't believe in the story or in the treasure, Many of the smartest theorists who uh, you know well and truly believe that something is indeed down there, or maybe was down there some sometime in the past, dispute exactly how the money pit was found and by whom. My point of all this, Roy, is I love where you're going. I love your thought process. I love your chain of logic. My only advice to you as we move forward in, in your thinking here is, other than, you know, spreading them out into multiple emails so I can read them and answer them better, uh, is to be ready to accept that anything that you have already accepted in your mind as true can change. We always have to be open-minded. You listed off things. This must be the case. This must be the case. This must be the case. You went down that list, right? But it doesn't take much to change that list, but it doesn't mean the story isn't true. It just means that none of us know the truth, at least not yet. Great email. Let's go to an email from Andy who writes, much shorter one. I say this with jest, but it's been on my mind since last season. I'm glad that all the previous searchers have now passed on because if I spent 20 years hand-digging holes to stick old 40-ton boxcars in them as tunnel supports that collapse anyway, and then have a guy bring in a four-story drilling structure that bores out the same hole in 48 hours to find nothing— I'd be pissed. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Uh, you're 100% correct about what that, you know, to say the least. I can only imagine what Dan Blankenship thought of all this, especially over the last couple of years. But it says something to me about the team and the show. And I don't think they get enough credit for this. I mean, let's face it, we can all complain, and we all love to complain about the narrator, the editing, the rehashing of stuff, and on and on and on. But any fan, of the Oak Island treasure hunt, especially one that comes from before the show, must admit that this show, this cast, this crew, this set of producers have brought along with them the most serious commitment, especially financially, to this hunt in its entire 200-plus year history. Thanks for the email, Andy. Okay, here is an email from Wallace, who writes, Hello, Dave. I'm skeptical about the apocryphal Templar map. In particular, it is supposedly almost 800 years old, yet it superimposes almost perfectly over images of the island today. Ocean levels would have been lower during the 14th century, and I would have to think that the size and shape of the island would be quite different than it is today. Also, it shows the island as whole. This would mean that the swamp was there 800 years ago and that the theory that it used to be a cove or a small channel between two islands is essentially wrong. Personally, I think the only thing that makes the swamp a swamp and not a cove or salt marsh is the road that separates it from the ocean. And that road looks artificial and is probably not over 800 years old unless the Romans built it. My guess is that it was constructed two to 300 years ago. Thanks for the great show. Wallace, that road you're talking about is much newer than even that. As far as I know, um, it was only built around the turn of the 20th century. So you're 100% correct when you say the swamp as we know it now. And even the swamp that Fred Nolan was the first one to really get involved with and the rest of us as well, uh, looked nothing like it did back before (laughs) the turn of the 20th century. Uh, It's just one of the many questions that I have about Zena's map and her theory, and that idea of the shoreline being different is going to be discussed this week as well. But all of that, getting into Zena's stuff, is another podcast for another day. Thank you for the email. Uh, I think we're going to be discussing that map a bit more before the season is out, and I'm sure at some point I'm going to have to get a little deeper into Zena Halpern's theory and some of the issues with it. It seems that uh, this road is something the team is going down here for sure. Okay, let's go to a follow-up email from our friend Lionel, another long one, who is in Portugal, who wrote a couple of weeks ago about the Portuguese connection. This time he writes, Dear Dave, thank you so much for the care you put into reading my long email in its entirety uh, and addressing its various aspects in your podcast. Again, this is a level of dedication to your audience that is far from being common, and I respect all the effort you put into this. I eagerly anticipate each weekly podcast for my morning hike of the following day. Well... Let me stop here. Thank you, sir, for the kind words. Um, Folks, This, in my mind, really, this is as much, and this sounds like a cliche, but this really is as much your podcast as it is mine. The whole point of me doing this was to kind of go through this, was really two reasons, to kind of get my own journey, to discover what the Oak Island mystery might be, to find my own theory, to come to my own, not kind of conclusion, but at least some better ideas, and to really do it with help. From the fascinating amount of uh, fascinating people that are in the Oak Island community. Uh, Anyway, the email continues. By listening to your comments, I realized that I missed mentioning a critical assumption. For me, this has grown as something almost obvious, which of course it isn't. Which is why I didn't mention it in the previous email, yet it might be worth discussing. While I mentioned lots of historical aspects, like the Vikings, Templars, Portuguese travels, etc., I did not mean to link all of these, or actually any of it, to the money pit. If there is something that has been getting clearer, it is that there are distinct, significant periods of activity in the timeline on Oak Island. The pre-searcher period seems to be more rich in finds from the mid-1600s to late-1600s. Then, there are only sparse finds from before that until the 1300 dating of the swamp which by its method is more solid than, say, the Lead Cross, which might have been handed over from generation to generation, who knows for how long, until it was finally lost there on the island. The assumption that I missed stating is that there could be entirely unrelated periods of activity on Oak Island, as indeed is common throughout the world, or the casual relationship might be almost accidental, like a rumor or a mythical tradition influencing people without direct maps, instructions, etc., my rationale is that the dating of creation of the swamp may align nicely with the period of late Viking contact with North America, the Vinland described in the sagas. And by means of the nobility connection I mentioned in my previous email, this might lead to eventual, eventually towards the efforts of the Templar or the Order of Christ activity in the general area, not the island specifically, that including the Miguel Corte Real interest, travels, etc., and could even be connected to the stories about the oak trees and the like. I don't think this is a direct origin of the money pit and related works. I think for that, we should follow the time period from from which more and more archaeological evidence is being found, which until now is the second half of the 16th century, or the 17th century, sorry, second half of the 1600s. As to why the, the region was of interest then, that could involve almost mythical hearsay, Uh, from those early Norse travels and their dissemination as stories across European nobility, but I wouldn't give them more consistency than that. As I say this, I know that this Tuesday's episode may always completely upend all we're discussing. Keep up the good work. Leonel, thank you, sir, uh, for taking the time to write. Again, such a thoughtful email. And your point here stands even without the discussion from the previous email, your point about the timelines and all that. The issue that I have with the island and the and the current search, at least, my really my biggest issue with all of this that's coming out certainly during the show and the things being discovered is that the timeline the discoveries are suggesting for us is just all over the place. So if we wanted to focus ourselves on a certain time period, You know, maybe now we're starting to do that, but God, for years we were just getting, you know, all over the place. From founding fathers all the way back to the Templars. And that's such a huge amount of time. They can't all be related. I mean, if we're going to believe that the evidence uncovered points to pre-18th century non-native inhabitants or visitors to Oak Island, then that evidence suggests that there were plenty more folks to arrive there than just those who did whatever it is we're trying to figure out here in the money pit. Now... In my mind, the way I'm thinking about all of this now is that the key here is perhaps not our lack of understanding so much of who the original depositors were, but also trying to get a handle on this huge gap in our knowledge of who knew about what happened on Oak Island, when they knew it, when they thought it might have happened, and who came looking for it, and when that searching took place. I think there are many more people over the centuries who were, at least that's how I'm leaning, many more people over the centuries who were aware of the island and its possibilities than we now know of, especially before the discovery of the money pit. That is really the topic of ongoing research by plenty of theorists and historians, so keep your ear to the ground on this, and let's see what comes of it this season and all the work being done by the folks beyond the shores of Oak Island, but think of what Doug Croll said, "I think last week or maybe the week before. Maybe this search, maybe we just don't have our head around how many people actually came looking for this. And and what he means is, people might have known about this, and people might have come looking here long before Daniel McGinnis and his buddies ever rode over to Oak Island." Okay, let's go to another email from Jeff. Hi Dave, been watching uh, quietly, watching from afar. As always, happy to see you're navigating all the facets of your life. Thank you, Jeff. Hope you're doing the same. Now, where I live, okay, the schools are now in an all-virtual learning, so I am acting uh, school teacher for the next few weeks. Uh, Now, I'm hoping that doesn't affect the podcast schedule too much, but for now, that does mean uh, the show, the review of the television show section is going to be a little less scripted and maybe a bit less, well, thought out, I guess is the right word, than in the past. I'll explain more on that later. Anyway, Jeff continues. I've always been fascinated with Lot 5 on Oak Island. The owner has two photos of bronze discs with square holes. No mention of their use, but not coins. Check it out. Ah, Lot 5, Jeff. Um, we haven't talked about that in some time. Um, good on you, Jeff, for finding this one. I never even thought to look over there uh, during this season, but that's very well spotted. Jeff is correct, folks. If you head over to Oak Island Lot 5, spell out the number 5, Oak oakislandlot5.com, and click the tab on top labeled Finds. You can scroll down just a little bit, and you're going to find two coin-shaped objects, both a bit over an inch in diameter, I guess, and both with a square hole right in the middle of them. Anyway, Jeff continues. Looking forward to finally digging in the southeast area of the swamp. Broken record. Many previous, researcher, uh, previous searchers talk about that spot. Can't remember any longer where I heard this. I believe the rest dolls did some work there. Last thought for now, do you think there is a connection to the so-called survey stones like the one found in the pine tar kiln and British subdividing of Oak Island in 1762? All the best and Merry Christmas, Jeff. Merry Christmas to you as well. Jeff, I'm not sure about the survey stones yet. I'm not sure they are survey stones, but... Um, It was divided. They're cagey about where they're putting these stones in the map as they're showing us. They tend to show us the lot they're on and maybe occasionally show us where they're finding it. But it's almost impossible to look at those things based on a map, an accurate map. That is another one of my great frustrations of the show. I want to see these discoveries and exactly where they are, not just a general idea from a narrator uh, who's then going to spend most of his time, rather than informing us on the <laughs> on what this is, just speculating about what it might possibly be. Um, and yes, I, I, there have been people who worked in the swamp other than um, Fred Nolan. Uh, Doug Kroll told me that the Restalls did indeed Work on the southeast corner of the swamp. I know Robert Dunfield did quite a bit of work on the swamp too, but I think that was on the western side. Um, so yeah, we're getting we're getting a good look at something that uh, people have been kind of prodding at for quite some time. Now let's go to an email from Mark who says, and it's another another big one. You guys really sent me some long ones here. Hi Dave. Okay, I got into the Google Earth line drawing frenzy as well. Unfortunately, I'm afraid I can't agree with Peter. That's our our listener who sent us in some pictures last year, which you can see on our Facebook page or Gorian mall. I will say that the menorah cross-shaped pond at Versailles does indeed point towards the temple Mount, no doubt by design while impressive by no means impossible. One only needs to look into the history of land surveying to know very accurate measurements were possible and indeed performed a long time. Going the other way though, from Versailles to Oak Island, either by following the bearing from Temple Mount to Versailles and on to the New World, or from the Menorah to Oak Island, you'll pretty much miss Nova Scotia, let alone Oak Island. Keep in mind, over about kilometers, uh, the 5,000 kilometers between France and Nova Scotia, a small deviation in bearing can result in a huge difference by the time you cross the Atlantic. You can always tweak things and make it look like they align visually. But in my mind, the math does not add up. Like Guptalin Nolan, I come from land survey background currently oversee all production at the survey company. As such, I deal with geospatial data on a daily basis and have a good sense of what goes on with Steve's magic stick. And I forgot her name's GIS maps. Erin Shelton, we'll get to her in a second. Uh, There are so many boulders, rocks, mystery stones on that island, you can always connect a couple and talk yourself into making sense of it and fit your theory of choice. I don't buy it. Now, he's referring to last week's... uh, uh, what 's the word i 'm looking for anchors the anchors stuff i don 't buy it either, but uh, we talked about that last week anyway uh, as you ever, if you ever need some, he also tells me if, to reach out to him if I ever need some help uh, <laughs> figuring all this survey stuff out, and he sent us some pictures which I will put on Facebook page. Mark you bet your bottom dollar that i 'm going to reach out to you. <laughs> I can hardly figure even out figure out even how to work the files you sent me. Um, Like I said, I'm going to put them on the Facebook page, and he sent us some photos of the plotting, but first he sent me something else. I couldn't even open the darn thing. Anyway, the theory from Corian Maul and Chris Morford has caused, boy, a lot of buzz and has raised tons of questions. So I think this is a good time to read a post Corian Maul wrote on our Facebook page for those of you who don't follow. I am in no way qualified to pass judgment on this theory Or your take on neither, Mark. I'm just not qualified to it. Nor am I qualified to answer the many, many questions I'm getting about this theory. So in the interest of fairness, let's read what the theorists have to say. Can't wait to get these guys on the podcast, really. Anyway, here's what he wrote. You can read it yourself, like I said, and see the accompanying photos on the Facebook page. Um, While you're out there, give us a like. Follow us if you're so inclined. Anyway, here's what Corian Mole wrote me. Since there appeared to be tons of questions about the theory Christopher Eric Morford and I presented on The, the Curse of Oak Island. Very, uh, and very uh, Christopher Eric Morford. It sounds very, very, very formal. Uh, on season eight, episode four of The Alignment, we hope you'll allow us to share our frequently asked questions. One, is there a line running from Oak Island to Jerusalem that runs through Chateau de Versailles in France? Answer, no. So what lines are there? The central axis of Louis XIV's Royal Domain at Versailles has an alignment with the Temple Mount in Jerusalem of great precision. The central axis of Louis XIV's Royal Domain in Versailles has an alignment with the spine of Nolan's Cross on Oak Island with a deviation of under a degree. The Chateau de Versailles and its gardens appear to be laid out like a giant uh, three-mile-tall menorah. Were these alignments made intentionally? Their answer is there is no way to know for sure But we think the alignment of Versailles with the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is no coincidence. It was the original site of the menorahs that lit the first temple in Solomon's Jerusalem. The alignment of Versailles with Nolan's cross is off by under a degree. If the alignment was intentional, it would be quite impressive given it spans more than 3,000 miles without a landmass in between. Since Nolan's Cross is the only structure in the vicinity of that line pointing back at Versailles with the same small deviation, and there is good supporting evidence, there is a fair chance the alignment with Oak Island is intentional. So I just want to stop here. So that, that part that he mentions there is really, really cool. The line going from Versailles to Nolan's Cross has a deviation, a small deviation that translates into hundreds of miles as we're hearing here. But it also appears that if you thought that this line going the opposite direction from Nolan's cross to Versailles has the same deviation. That seems that seems to really add something to it here. Anyway, number four was the technology for making these alignments available at the time Versailles was built. Answer is in most places, no. In France, yes. They could calculate these alignments within these margins of error. Question number five why were you looking for these lines? The answer, we weren't looking for any lines. Our research into the life and works of Nicholas Poussin led us to research Versailles, where we expected to find something to do with the menorah. Number six, why would Louis XIV have built a giant menorah? He was a Catholic king in a Catholic country. There was no doubt that Louis XIV had an above average interest in Solomon's temple and its sacred artifacts. There is an abundance of clues as to that, but we will share two. So here are his clues. One, the last great addition the king built to his chateau was the absolutely stunning royal chapel, which was completed in 1710. He would stand at the front of the chapel for certain ceremonies between images of the Ark of the Covenant and the menorah. He, the Sun King, being the only one allowed to face the altar featuring the Tetragrammaton, God's sacred name in its golden triangle, all the others had to face him. We know now he directly faced Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, the original site of the menorahs. The chapel is decorated with scenes involving the temple of Jerusalem, infant Jesus at the temple, Jesus in the temple with the doctors of the law, Jesus driving the merchants from the temple. If anyone would still doubt after this, on the painting of uh, Christ's entry into Jerusalem, Louis XIV had the temple of Jerusalem replaced by the very chapel that we're discussing here. And the second When the the Dauphines, the official title of the crown prince of France, and I think I'm saying that right, uh, were groomed to take the throne, they were presented with a book entitled The Mirror of Princes. This book introduced the future king to past kings he should try to emulate. They were not past French kings. They were the Jewish kings of old, David and Solomon. Now, another question and answer from them. Uh, Weren't these alignments all discovered? before by other people? The answer, to our knowledge, in the past, authors and researchers, and he names a few of them, have made references to a possible alignment between Nolan's Cross, Jerusalem, and other locations. There might be more people who have investigated these, as it's quite a logical thing to check where a giant stone formation is pointing. No one has mentioned Versailles in this context and spotted the giant menorah of Versailles. Hidden in plain sight. When we spoke of the alignments to the Oak Island team, we credited Peter Amundsen and Chris Dona. Um, we've mentioned Amundsen, not the other guy, so we'll get to him uh, for mentioning all an uh, alignment with Jerusalem. We recently learned of the others, and there are probably more. We hold all of them in high regard for our own unique re- for their own unique research. Now, number question number eight: Are you guys crackbots, kooks, or crazy? Possibly, and so am I, Corian, let's be honest. It doesn't mean we like to be called it, but it's probably the price you pay for being on television. Understood. Uh, Are there more of these alignments? The answer, we will mention one other. Underneath Louis XIV's giant menorah at Versailles lies a Latin cross, formed by a number of big lakes. The short arm of this cross points to a well-known site for fans of the Curse of Oak Island, with great precision, the Chateau de la Rochefoucauld. This line makes a cross with the line to Jerusalem. Thank you for reading and take care, Corian and Chris. Now, this is obviously a theory, folks, that um, and a story that's evolving every day. I cannot thank Corian enough for giving me that information to pass to you because we've talked so much about this theory. I really wanted to get his input um, due to the fact that this that it's still evolving on the show. We really... I really hesitate to get him on for an interview because I think at this point with the show still coming, there's going to be too many questions that he'll have to give the answer of. Well, I can't tell you that yet because we're discussing that on the show. So that's the reason why I wanted him to take the time, write this down. I didn't even ask him to do this. He just did it on his own. But why I really appreciate him taking the time to do this because um, I think that answers some questions for us. If you didn't get them all. Head to our Facebook page uh, and you'll see it posted right there. You can always email me and I'll be happy to send it to you if you want to read that a little deeper and cut down a little uh, further into the ground here on this one. I think we can say rather confidently that we're going to talk a lot more about this theory in the coming weeks. Oh, man. All right. As you can probably tell, this has been a tough show for me, guys. I mean, uh, there's so much to read there and so much great information. And I feel so uncomfortable reading uh, just straight up like that. Anyway, let's get to this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island called Seeing is Believing. Seeing spelled with an (laughs) S-E-A. You can see the clever joke there, right? Uh, Now, before we begin, uh, let me just mention something I, I talked about earlier. Uh, like I said, my son's school is now all virtual. He's home every day, and this is going to be the case until mid-January. So the time that I have each week to put into this show has been well and truly diminished. Um, so in order to have as few sort of interruptions in the podcast schedule as possible, and also in order to be able to get them out in a timely fashion for everyone, I'm going to do the episode review section of the show without writing a script. Uh, as I've explained before, I usually watch the show when it airs, then I watch it again the next morning. I then spend most of Wednesday and Thursday researching and writing a script, and then I record it and try to have it out by Friday, and then I spend the following weekend going through the emails and getting that getting those ready. So I, I what I apologize for here is the the lack of continuity and what you're about to hear and my horrible tendency to ramble as I'm doing right now, because I'm going to do this portion of the show basically live to tape. Uh, hopefully we'll get back to a normal format in the not too distant future. So with uh, you know, with all this in mind, uh, also let me mention next week is Christmas, uh, right at the end of the weekend when I would be doing our you know, post in the podcast. So I'm not at all promising you a show next week. In fact, I usually post it on Friday, which would be Christmas morning. So it's probably not going to be a show. If there is, it's going to be a quick one without any emails and just some thoughts on the show itself. But we will uh, check my Facebook page for all of that. So let's get started, okay? Seeing is Believing starts at the Money Pit uh, where we have Terry Matheson and Charles Barkhouse doing sort of core samples. There's really nothing of interest here. This is another kind of setup scene in my mind. We've had a few of these the last couple of weeks. Um, there's really nothing to it, but it kind of leads us to believe that there might be, you know, something coming down the line here in the money pit. The only thing really of interest in this scene is that Terry says there is a quote-unquote break in the bedrock between 215 and 220 feet down. don't know what that is or what it means. Rick then asks these two guys, Terry and Charles, if they have a target in their mind, and they both seem to agree that they're targeting the eastern side of the money pit, which I think kind of lines up with some of the theorist speculations this year, right? Anyway, not much here at the money pit, not much to really dwell on. Uh, Like I said, I think we're just setting this all up. Let's go back over to lot 15, which is uh, where we had the site of the pine tar kiln, but uh, now they're looking for something called ring bolts. Now, On this, another survey of Fred's from the 1960s, and I'm not sure if it's the same one we've seen. It's hard to tell from the pictures they show us. Uh, He has labeled on here, quote-unquote, old steel anchor ring in boulder. It's labeled in a spot on a survey, which is on Lot 15. Fred Nolan claimed to have found kind of iron rings bolted into boulders, and he found these during the 1960s, um, which he thought was used for tying ships up from the shore or from from the ocean you know Uh, Nolan had them removed I guess which they mentioned quickly Um, not sure why he did that I've also don't know that I've seen many pictures of this if there are any out there that you're aware of please send them to me anyway Tom Nolan his son says he thinks that there's possible evidence that there are more than just these ones they found so here Gary Drayton is with his metal detector trying to find more of these ring bolts Gary finds instead a piece of an old potbelly stove, and they take this little piece up to Carmen Legg, who says it is indeed the bottom of a potbelly stove and from possibly the early 1700s. Now, in my mind, as fascinating as this might all be, it is exactly what I would find would expect to find in a place as cold as Mahone Bay can be. Potbelly stove is exactly what one would need in order to exist on Oak Island in the 17 or 1800s, in the winter months, maybe even a little bit before and after winter as well. <laughs> anyway, let's head back over quickly to the war room session. We have a continuation with uh, Aaron Shelton, Helton, Helton, I think, uh, who last week was called a specialist in GIS or Geographic Information Systems from a company called Resource Data Incorporated. This week, she is referred to as a cartographer, which I don't remember her being referred to as that last week. Strange inconsistency there. don't know what that means. Anyway, Erin is, according to the narrator, I think, uh, quote, working to decipher the master grid that will tell them where the treasure will be. Now, in this scene, she uses the old lead cross, the famous Templar cross, Medieval cross found on on uh, Smith's Cove a couple of seasons back, and she's using it as something of like a protractor or a key uh, laid on a map of Oak Island, and you trace it out and you find some points of interest that she says you know these lines kind of fit into a point of interest now, I can go through all of what she said here, and I could do that point by point um, and really kind of tear it apart, but honestly. I'm not going to do that. Let me say this. Minutes after this scene aired, (laughs) a listener, Jesse, wrote me an email. I mean, I'm still watching the show when this email came across. Let me read it to you. He writes, quote, okay, I love Oak Island. I watch it religiously, but there is no way, and I mean no way, that a cross that was cast 1,700 years ago is the key to a treasure. No one is going to cast a cross that needs to be used with a square to draw a diamond to overlay a grid over an island that should hold a treasure. Now you get what I mean? This is a really reaching, this is really reaching for answers. How many different ways did she turn her 3D printed cross to match her theory? Sorry, but was a little disappointed in the first part of this episode and he's referring to this. And let me add this, Jesse, you're hundred percent right, but let me add this and think about this folks. How does she know that the folks who would use this cross as the key on the map to find where, it, where to dig would have exactly the correct size map needed in order to do it? Because if I take the cross and its dimensions and I lay it over the map that I have, these points that she comes up with would be hundreds of yards offshore because it's a smaller rendering of Oak Island, <laughs> I mean, and, and if she's using the Xena Halpern map as the guide to the size, I mean, we already know the Island is the, the water levels are different. So this is all, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, now in all of this, like I said, there just doesn't just too much. that doesn't compute. And, but I tell you over and over again on this podcast, these scenes with these theorists are chopped to bits And we get nowhere near the amount of information these theorists have and how they came across these conclusions. So I'm going to conclude (laughs) that that is what is happening here and give Aaron the benefit of the doubt. Because in all honesty, at the risk of sounding almost obnoxious here, what we saw in this scene is, I mean, really just not worthy of inclusion in a serious discussion about solving the mysteries and finding all the possibilities of Oak Island. At least, I, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do here, right? That's what I'm hoping this podcast is all about. And you just need to come with me more than a random map and how you can trace a cross over it. I just, it just didn't do it for me. Anyway, let's hope that gets better. We hear more about that. Um, and hopefully we'll talk about it more in the episodes to come. Okay, we're going to finish up now over at the swamp. Uh, We're back over in the southeast corner of the swamp, and uh, Rick and the swamp doctor, Dr. Ian Spooner of uh, Acadia University, are over there on a uh, fun little inflatable boat, uh, probing around in this area that Dr. Spooner, I think, did a sonar scanning of, if I'm correct, a couple of weeks back. He's sending a long probe down into it, and he finds flat stones a few feet under the surface muck. Now, people have done this before um, and it's turned out to be things. We found the, uh, you know, we found stuff in the eye of the swamp. We found things by doing just the same method. He describes what he's finding as a floor and then he is mapping it out with these stakes. <laughs> and what, 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 what you have to realize is that he's probing down through dirt to hit this rock and I think he mentions at some point that um, that's why he's able to get the stakes in on top of a rock, right? I think he mentions at some point that the uh, the dirt and the amount of dirt tells already tells him that, you know, these rocks, if, if placed there, were placed there quite some time ago. Now, the, the narrator starts linking this all to Lot 15 and the things found over there. But that does seem premature at this point. Side note, I find it interesting that they're still talking about that ship anomaly, which I used to call the SS Maddie Blake, because he was so sure that they had found a ship, uh, on the seismic scanning they did, I think before the end of season six, right? Folks, they did some core sampling over that in the first episode or two of last season, if I'm getting this all right, and they found nothing. So I'm not sure why we're still talking about the ship anomaly. Uh, you know, Drain the swamp, dig in it. They had the chances to do that. They haven't. I don't even know why we mentioned it anymore. But anyway, be that as it may. By the end of the scene, Spooner is saying that what he found here was a 20-foot-wide by 70-foot-long road that runs across the swamp. This is in quotes, kind of connects land to the beach. Now, what we are expecting this year in the swamp is big things. Marty Lagina told us that, right? And this would definitely qualify as big. So a couple of scenes later, we bring in Tony Sampson to ferry them around, uh, the Oak, around Oak Island with his sonar scanner. Now, this is kind of related because Dr. Spooner is trying to do a couple of things here. He's trying to see if these features extend beyond the swamp and into the water. Because what he wants to do, and I love this idea, is create a map of what Oak Island might have looked like in 1600 or even as far back as 1200. Because the underwater features can kind of tell you that and give you a really good idea of that. There's a lot of science that goes towards this. And this is a really great way to go down, great road to go down. Especially if we can get a real good look at what the island might have looked like in those time frames. And then that uh, allows us to, to grow the search beyond the shores of the current island and maybe even figure out where other things might be. Um, so... Like like he was saying, what he's looking for here is to see if whatever they're finding under the muck in the swamp is on the surface, you know, on the floor of the sea, just offshore. So they go out on Tony Sampson's boat. Tony runs uh, Salty Dog Tours. He's also a diver. He's been on this. We've talked about Tony so much. He's a great guy. Um, and he takes him out on this pontoon boat that he uses for tours of Oak Island, which, by the way, if you weren't listening in the summer... He actually saved the guy's life on this boat. <laughs> they saw a guy who was a fisherman who had lost his boat and was struggling for his life in the waves there. And they just happened to catch a glimpse of his head. And he was, you know, probably minutes away from from dying and drowning there. And And uh, Tony pulled him pulled him to safety and he's still alive. Today. It's amazing. Anyway, Tony's got them out on his boat. And uh, as they're scanning around, they're starting over at Fred Nolan's old boat. Uh, dock. Now, probably the most used dock in all of the modern history of Oak Island, because for those of you who don't know, uh, Fred Nolan had no access to his property via the land because Dan Blankenship wouldn't let him use the road that cuts through Dan's property. And also, I believe Fred never liked to stay on the island and never did actually sleep overnight on the island. Got on a little boat came over from the mainland every day, docked up, used his house, did things, and then went back. So that's actually the probably the most used dock on all, <laughs> all of Oak Island. Anyway, Alex Legena is with Spooner and Sampson as they go for a sonar scan. Starting from the north, uh, they don't find much. In fact, Spooner has mentioned something about it being really featureless over there. But then they start finding a couple of hits. Um, one is an interesting hit, which I think was off the Boulderless Beach, uh, that Tony says is possibly a ship. Now, I spoke to, because I, there was something about a possible shipwreck discussed in our podcast episode interview with James McQuiston, I wrote Mr. McQuiston, and I asked him what he thought, and he pointed out this to me. He was surprised that they're calling it this, because in the previews, and I went back and watched, he's right, they kept saying cannon. Now they're saying ship. So two different things. Anyway, maybe that'll change as we go on. And then... They so they find this hit definitely looked weird on sonar, and then they went over towards the swamp uh, and they found what they call a square shaped feature, which I think they later described as being something like eight feet by eight feet. Um, Really, folks. At this point, it's impossible for me to comment or say anything about it. I know nothing about sonar data. I cannot, for the life of me, tell you what this could be. Um, During this little debrief section, they're now doing debriefs outdoors, I guess, with COVID in mind, uh, out for the on these picnic tables at the uh, interpretive center somebody describes this i think tony might have described it as part of a shipwreck at 30 feet under well i mean i can't wait to see this i hope they dive on it this is great fascinating stuff i'd be stunned if that what this is that's what this is because i I think much of the offshore area has been looked at at oak island Uh, i'd be stunned that it wasn't discovered anyway folks we're on to a new portion here and this is just the beginning that's going to do it for this episode of the digging oak island podcast please don't forget to subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts and if you do enjoy the show please rate and review us on apple Podcasts or wherever you listen it does help to get the word out on the show and bring us more listeners again i apologize for all the rambling it's tough for me to read such long things and some of that stuff is hard but uh, hopefully we got through it and you got it all if you have any questions or comments um you know, about any of this stuff or any questions you want to get yourself to, to you want to get on for yourself to be answered in a future podcast, just send it on to me at digginok at gmail.com. Don't forget you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Diggin Oak island. Give us a like or a follow there. It'd be much appreciated. And that's shameless plug time. I do another podcast with a great old friend of mine called Sit Downs and Sessions. Him and I were on the show together on this podcast, Digging Oak Island, talking about Oak Island, uh, last year sometime. On the sit-downs and sessions, it's basically just us wishing we were at a bar. We were hoping to actually do these podcasts, record them at a bar, <laughs> where we talk about anything you one would find great conversation at a bar, right? Politics, beer, uh, the paranormal, basically whatever we want, whatever's on our mind. We've spent a lot on politics because of the COVID pandemic and the fact that we haven't been able to get to a pub recently and. Uh, And we're going to start turning the page on that a little bit. Um, This week, we're putting out three podcasts all for Christmas. The first is a quick political conversation followed by our holiday beer, cocktail, music, and movie recommendations for you. So go ahead and listen to that. The second is a conversation we had a few years ago about uh, Charles Dickens and the Christmas Carol. And the final podcast, these are all going to come out this week, is a live rendition that's taped from a few years back of the Christmas Carol that I narrated and helped put together for a radio program out of New Jersey. It's actually Chris's program, and he's the one that would be playing uh, Scrooge. Search for sit downs and sessions on Apple Podcasts, or uh, you can check our Facebook page for a link. I'll put it up there too. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.